the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-1172, 888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. America, Hugh Hewitt, on this Monday, April the 26th, in the year of our Lord, 2021, joined by Terry Pluto, America's best sports writer, my favorite sports writer from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. You can read everything that Terry has written at uh, terrypluto.com, get one of his many fabulous books. And about twice a year, I asked Terry to join me because not to super serve the WHK 1420 audience or the 98.9 audience in Columbus. But in fact, to deal with the uh, Cleveland fans across the United States and sports fans generally, and it's draft week, and draft week is in Cleveland this week, so it's particularly appropriate. Terry, welcome back. How are you, my friend? I am well, Hugh. Now, have you been down to Draft Central yet? Have you been to the stage in the area? I have not. No, they've had, basically, you know, everything now is still kind of limited access until they get everything going. I mean, I've seen a lot of pictures of it and that, so. Oh, usually when you're a sports writer covering the draft, uh, you know, they used to have us kind of hold up in the press room there at Berea. Now we're still doing everything Zoom from home, so it's it's been a, it's been different. But the uh, here's the amazing thing, Hugh, and you knew growing up a Browns fan. Once they got to be bad and stay bad, the draft was always the Super Bowl. Yep. But so now the Super Bowl's finally in Cleveland. But actually, for the Browns, the draft is not as big a deal. It isn't, and it's wonderful. Yeah, it's actually kind of wonderful. Good. <laughs> We're a good team. People are actually talking about Super Bowl and not laughing. They're talking about no. going beyond the playoffs and uh, round two and not laughing. Um, Terry, just a, a hometown question uh, for our, our WHK fans before I go broader. Who do you see them taking in the first round? Cornerback? Yeah, some kind of defensive back or something. And that's this is the other odd thing. I haven't spent a ton of time looking at these different players that they might take because usually it's every year you're evaluating the cornerbacks. Or even a year ago, uh, while they had Baker Mayfield to be your quarterback, if they didn't get the left tackle right, you know, if you don't protect your quarterback, you get them killed, well, then what good is that? So I was looking at left tackles, and they actually – they probably got the best one to draft, a kid named Jedrick Wills from Alabama. And, and they, it's one of those things he played up right tackle his whole life and they switched him over to left. It doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal, but it is. And if you get it wrong, everybody makes fun of you because you're Cleveland and you messed it up. But they didn't do that. You know, the punchline in the new Ted Lasso promo was about the Jets. It was yeah. such a relief not to have the punchline be about the Browns. Yeah, it's like, and it used to be sometimes they could say, well, you know, we may be the Jets, but at least we're not the Browns. Um, well, you can't say that. You love to be the Browns. I mean, as I, uh, I actually asked some people on my Facebook page for some input because I'm writing a story on how the draft used to be such an obsession for most Browns fans. And one guy said, 
you know, I have a goal for next year where I want the Browns to pick. And they wrote 32nd. There you go. There you, I'm, I'm with them. You know, you have got some amazing young colleagues over at Cleveland.com. Mm-hmm. And one of them, Doug, Le- I can't say his last name, Les Marys. There's Doug uh, Lee Maurice. There's Larry L- K. Cabot. And there's just, a, a young African-American I really like a ton who's worked his way up in business named Ellis Williams and Dan they, Lobby. They, have they are terrific. We have five people assigned full-time to the Browns. Scott Pascoe is another one. I mean, you think people cover the White House in Washington. We cover it. The Browns that way. And they do the Orange and Brown podcast now, yeah. which is what I listen to every day after mm-hmm. the show because it's a bit. You don't do the Orange and Brown podcast very much, Terry Pluto. No, Why is that? They're trying to figure something out, out for me to do coming up. So, uh, yeah, they do a great job with that. And then a lot of what I'm doing, you know, I'm scribbling or writing notes and, and kind of the old fashioned format. We're trying to, to fill out things. So, the, the nice thing for me is, like, Ellis played football, Division three football, Wisconsin lacrosse, and so he'll, he, he breaks down film. We have another guy that breaks down film. They both play college football, and they can write. I mean, it's nice if you can play, play college football, but if you can't write it, what good is it? So, you know, if you're really into this stuff, we've got it. And then, you know, I always have fun just, you know, how Browns fans are feeling and, and that kind of thing. But I am so relieved not to be having the – quarterback debate i mean you I and i are like Baker moses good or great but the fact is he's good and he beat the steelers and he beat the steelers should make you happy no it, they did and and you and i are like moses i don't know if we're going to get to the promised land but we can see it and yeah. doug doug did a great analytic it's like the analytics thing in the browns front office is mm-hmm. spilled over now into the cleveland plain dealer and he did this thing about if you draft a quarterback it makes your team get better if you go deep into a quarterback you have to build your team around it mm-hmm. i got a lot of other things to, to ask you about but I, I i wanted to ask you this in your time as a cleveland sports writer have we ever had this much front office talent in terms of owner, GM, and coaches among the three franchises as right now? And I mean just oh, pure oh, brain power. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the Browns' best combination, you know, if you go back to Paul Brown, Blatt, and Collier way back then, and then another one's when they had Ernie Accorsi and they had uh, Marty Schottenheimer in the late 80s. And again, both times you have, you have Bernie Kosar as your quarterback there. Um, after that, uh, with the Indians, these guys are really sharp. Of course, they're in a league where it's just terrible because you don't, you know, if you're in Cleveland, you can't spend or you don't, whatever. The the money make is a big deal. Um, you know, Dan Gilbert as an owner no, shows when he feels that uh, uh, the team's got a chance, he will spend. So it could be, you could say that it's as good as it is, especially if this group that's running the Browns now, Hugh, if they could put together another playoff season. Uh, I might say that because this will be last year. A lot of things went right. They really did. And they fought through the COVID and the new stuff, but a lot of did go right for them. So let's see this time around, but I'm really encouraged because they make moves and they'll sit there and go, well, that's stupid. Um, and sometimes they'll make a move. I go, I'm not sure what it is. And I kind of text some people I know. And then I get back some info and I go, well, that makes some sense. Actually, I didn't see that part of it. Yeah, well, I, I'm always impressed with Barry. I, I actually mm-hmm. think uh, quite a lot of the Haslam's backing off, and, and I think Paul Diapotesta is really a genius. And Kevin Stefanski, I tell my boys, I've watched so many different people on the sidelines. We finally have a Tom Landry mm-hmm. or a Bud Grant kind of character who doesn't need to be the story who wants to coach the team. And I just, 
I'm so happy where we are on all three fronts. Even the Cavs. You wrote a piece you know, talking to yourself about the Cavs, and they got these four young players around whom they just need the, the lottery ball to fall one more time for them, and they'll be a franchise for five to seven years. Yeah, they got to get, like, old enough to rent a car or whatever it is. I mean, <laughs> you know, 23 or whatever that, that thing is. Stefanski uh, and uh, Northeast Ohio fans will, I think, appreciate this. The other coach he reminds me of is Jim Trussell. Yes. Uh, you know, the yes. same thing. He's, 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 you know, he's organized. He's not interested in being the story. Um, he has a feel for the fans. Um, and so he mentions that. But it's really – and he's about, you know, the old thing about process and being organ and, and also a sense that um, if this goes bad, it's not the end of the world. And the kind of the emotion's been taken out. And the big thing is that the – you know, the front office and the coaching staff have played nice so far. You know, that didn't take long in the past for that to break up. Yeah, a lot of lot of first-day love and then second-day backstabbing. Oh, boy, uh, very briefly on baseball, the, mm-hmm. the Indians traded a franchise player. Chris Christie gives me a hard time about this whenever because he's a Mets fan. Uh, yeah, Francisco Lindor. Yeah, and I will. I, 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 yeah, we'll I will keep saying that while we can. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they got back some interesting people. One of them, they're trying to turn into a center fielder, and and they've got Shane Bieber. I mean, they've got you got a good club to watch. They're four games back, but it's the Royals, so I don't really worry about it yet. And they got this close. I mean, what do you think of the tribe this year? I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I was like around 500 with them, but the thing about baseball is that the rest of the division doesn't play particularly well. That that keeps you in contention. Well, if you really want to bother Christie, just tell him that Jenmar Jimenez is having a better start than Francisco Lindor. Let him think about that for a while. I will. I will pass that along. He's a now, good shortstop they got for uh, uh, Lindor. What I really wanted to do with you for the the longer podcast is yes. that you're a sports writer. And you have been a sports writer, and you are also a writer on faith. And there aren't a lot of people who's a lifer in one town in your business who are also writing a much beloved column on Christian belief. I am about none. Yeah, you're you're about right. You're you're a a category of one. Would you give people the brief Terry Pluto bio where you grew up and how you ended up doing this? I grew up in uh, in Cleveland. I went to Cleveland Benedictine High School on the east side, and I, w- I went to Holy Name uh, Grade School, which is on the west side, and then, and and then uh, Cleveland State. And actually, I worked, which really helped me, uh, Hugh, because my first three jobs was kind of like going to the minors. It's not to put those 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 cities down, but in terms of pro sports, I did Greensboro and I went to Savannah. I did double A baseball in Savannah. Then I spent a year covered the Orioles for the old Baltimore Evening Sun. And then the, I did baseball for the Plain Dealer. I did the Cavaliers for the Beacon Journal in Akron. And then came back to the Plain Dealer. And then I became a columnist, and I came back to the Plain Dealer in 07. So those are the things there. But at one point, uh, I was given a chance to become the general columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal. And I, I knew that most of the time when a sports writer does that, it doesn't, doesn't fare well. But we got to talking. I was telling them about some of the prison ministry and things I was doing in a few stories. And they asked me about religion coverage. And I said, most of the time, it's just about – it's politics on the religion page, you know, it's, it's abortion, gay bishops, all the hot button uh, topics. And, and I started talking about how faith, you know, faith is very personal. It touches people. Uh, and, and we should write about emotions. And the editor asked me to write some couple sample columns. And and I did. And they sat there for like four months. And then suddenly she decided to start running them. And that was like 20 years ago. And when I went to the point dealer, it went with me.
Has anyone thought about syndicating that? Because there is actually no major religion writer in America left. I used to cover it fairly re often mm -hmm. for uh, Life and Times and PBS, but there is not a major religion columnist in America now. Not that I know of. Uh, how that, I don't even know how it works anymore with the Internet or what. So, uh, I mean, I wrote some books, Faith in You, Volume 1, and the Faith in You, Volume 2. So they're out there. You know, people can get them. Um, this week's faith column on loss is among your best, and I, I, I wrote one note on it. First, actually, Cleveland sports have dealt with real loss, and I don't mean on the field. I mean like no. Chris Hubbard losing his wife. I mean like Steve Olin and Tim Cruz dying. Mm -hmm. I mean Ernie Davis. They've really – so it's, it's not like there hasn't been real loss in sports, but that wasn't what you wrote about this weekend. But first, how is Chris Hubbard doing? As far as I know, he's okay. Um that's the, we really don't know a lot, Hugh. This is a, the pandemic has shut down access and all kinds of stuff to things. It, uh, and from a, I'll tell you, from a pro sports like PR thing, this is a dream for them because, you know, you just roll out who you want on Zoom and this, and and then otherwise, um, uh, it, it's kind of controlled. But I've not heard anything uh, about him. And if you want to add up to loss, it's not on the on the same realm of, of someone dying. But when the Browns moved, that oh. was a major loss to the community, a major loss business wise, and, you know, a major loss on so many fronts. I always have argued no fan base has been more uh, beat up and put down and kicked around than the Cleveland Browns fan base. Oh, my mom was dying through those three years. She died in 97. Yeah. And they, and she went to every home game like I did from 1965 to 19 until they left. Uh, well, she could still make it up the steps. And when they left in 95, it was like taking a prop out from mm -hmm. the, their chemotherapy. I think that's the guy whose name I will not mention. But Patricia Neal tells yeah. me, Patricia Neal tells me I have to be nice to him because he would come over on Christmas with her dad, Chuck, and they would be... He'd always yuck it up, but I, I don't want to go there. Have you ever covered a worse story than the than the Indians boating accident? People don't even remember 1993, but I do. Uh, it was awful. Has there ever been a worse story? And actually, I wasn't there for that. I was doing the doing the Cavaliers still. I was just ah. kept coming off that. So I remember, I forgot where I was with the Cavs. So I actually wasn't there for that. Uh, I know when you talk to Mike Hargrove, who's the manager, John Hart, the GM, and actually the team spokesman ended up being, this was a phenomenal thing, a young Carlos Baerga who was speaking for the players. You know, you don't, you don't know how people react until and who kind of comes out of uh, adversity and and tragedy as a leader, and by Erga was one of the ones that did, and so did Omar Vizquel, along with uh, you know some of the Anglo players. But those two talking about tragedy and loss and their teammates in their second language always impressed me. It's been for those who do not know, it's been about twenty five years. But in the off season, three, yeah, three Indians were out bass fishing, uh, yeah. and they were good players: Steve Olin, Tim Cruz, Bob Ojeda. And two of them died, and one of them, I don't think he ever resumed his career, right? Well, um, he had a pitch briefly, but that was it. Yeah, they're, they're both crashed into a dock at night. It was it was bad. It was really bad. And then Ernie Davis has had a movie made about him. Um, mm -hmm. Chris Hubbard lost his uh, his wife-to-be in, in a car accident on the highway. I mean, there's well, real— Chris Smith. I'm sorry. Uh, Chris Smith was the one that lost his wife. Oh, uh, Chris Smith. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I was thinking it was Chris Hubbard. I was thinking it was Chris Hubbard. So, Chris Smith, do you know how he's doing or what happened? The, he he ended, He's played somewhere else or something. He lost track of him. Hubbard had a really bad knee injury. So that That's was, it. So that was another thing there. I mean, and, and a lot of that stuff is— is for real. I think other franchises have those things too. 
but one of the but very few have had a, a a franchise that was the soul of the community, like the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I used to say sometimes I would get emails from fans, and I would write, you know, the fans are so mad about the Browns, they're going to stop going to Indians games for a while. And that was, and it was <laughs> well, true. were you in Baltimore covering the O's when the uh, Colts left? Uh, no, I was just was there in seventy. I was with I was with the Orioles when they had like one of the greatest managers ever, Earl Weaver. They won over a hundred games and went to the World Series. And like most young people who see something really good all the time, you figure it's going to be like that. Then I came home to Cleveland and I suddenly discovered I went from like baseball graduate school to you know play school. I mean, yeah. it was it was incredible uh, the the difference, not just because of money or anything, but just approach, organization, that kind of stuff. He was as uh, revolutionary in his time as the Oakland A's were in there. Let me talk to you about uh, sports tragedy, which is a different kind of suffering. You've got Mm -hmm. Wayne Garland, who's on the cover of SI and then blows out, I don't know if his arm or his knee. you got Herb Score who gets hit in the eye and he returns Mm -hmm. to the mound, but he's never never Herb Score again. Does that, that, uh, on the series of loss, since you were writing about this this weekend, do people ever write about what happens to athletes when their dream just goes away like that? I mean, I I had written a few things with Herb Score about that. And I think that in Herb's case, for example, um, there was a fair amount of denial. And that being that Herb always insisted when he was hit in the eye by a line drive off the bat of Gil McDougal, that he was out for the rest of the year, but that he came back and he actually was throwing well. And he had some story about slipping on the mound in Washington and it hurt his arm and he never was the same after that and as he would say any pitcher could hurt his arm and then he went into being a broadcaster but my goodness if you look at the first couple years of Herb's career um, and Rocky Calvito friend of mine and a very close friend of Herb's would say he was like Sandy Koufax or whatever dominating lefty you could think of in any era. Steve Carlton that was who he was going to be. Then Herb went on and did the Indians forever on the radio um, so well, he's a voice of summer for me. The vo- yeah, and Indians is. win the pennant. Indians win the pennant. Indians win the pennant. the pennant. I mean, yeah. basically, whether you hurt or lose your career, or you just retired. I, I have a story coming up with Reggie Langhorn who played for the Browns. Oh, and Reggie played, and and, and he mentioned to me, uh, Reggie's now selling cars in Cleveland. He says, you know, I woke up the other morning, and I realized this was my tenth year selling cars, and my NFL career was only nine years. And I realized, too, that if you're under 40, you just know that I'm Reggie, who works at the you know the West Side Chevy dealer. They don't even know that I played. Oh, well, I'll go buy a Chevy if I ever buy one from him. If yeah. the Browns could get a Reggie Langhorn in this draft, wouldn't we be happy? I mean, yes, <laughs> and Reggie, how about this? Reggie Langhorn was a seventh-round pick, there are seven rounds, out of Elizabeth City College in North Carolina. <laughs> No, I did not know that. That's amazing. I didn't, actually, I, I forgot where he was drafted or whatever. And on top of that, he was sitting on his grandma's porch, really drinking lemonade on draft day. And the phone call came to his mother, who went and pulled him off of grandma's porch so he'd go back there, find out the Browns took him. Oh, that is, and he played. Uh, he, was, he was a very sure-handed receiver. Yeah, Ran he was a very good receiver, both for Cleveland and later with the Colts. Now, I want to talk to you about faith and sports players. I know three of the people that you've covered. Uh, Miles Garrett is a believer in Africa doing his work. Urban Meyer is a friend of mine. He's a believer. Brian Seip, who I've gotten to have the honor of having lunch with, he, he was working on an evangelical outreach in California. He said no one in Cleveland who hears this will believe it, but he's a believer now. What is the, what is the percentage of players 
who are actually people of faith? I would think the tough thing there is when people say, oh, he's a person of faith, that means he must walk on water and never have, you know, never be selfish, never do stupid stuff or whatever. You know, and that, when that thing, then all of a sudden, you know, we all are, sin- we all are sinners and fallen short. If that's the standard, we've all fallen short, none of us count. But if you talk about people who take it seriously, uh, I would say at least half. Uh, I really would. Um, and also in the African-American community, and I go to primarily an African-American church in Akron House of the Lord, my friend Bishop Joey Johnson there, and he, he says that in general, you know, his experience, he goes, does a lot of uh, cross-racial work in, in Northeast Ohio and that, and he would say in general, African-American people are a little more wired more spiritually, and I tend, I found that in my own experience too, so, or at least wired in a different way that it comes out more. So that's, I think, at least half, and and I also think that, you know, things like sports or what we just talk about, I mean, at some point or other, something's going to drive you to your knees. Now, whether you want to admit it or not, or you want to pray or not, um, that's up to you. But something, somebody's going to get cancer, somebody's going to get fired, something's going to leave, somebody's going to leave you, something's going to happen. Yeah, every life has a best year and a worst year. Every every year has a best week and a worst week, and every week has a best hour and a worst hour. And I, and usually the faith comes out in that. Now, but what I'm worried about, and I don't know if you've noticed this, Terry, Twitter has done a funny thing to sports. It's made it a clubhouse for professional athletes. Yeah. And they talk to each other, and they don't talk to the fans. Uh, Baker does occasionally. I think he's a ter- terrific face for Cleveland. He reaches out and touches fans, but I'm an old guy. They don't need to. They don't need to entertain me. But they got to entertain their ten and their fifteen year olds, and they're not doing that because they're talking to each other. Have you noticed that? I have to admit, I don't spend a lot of time looking at it. But my, I mentioned some of my younger colleagues who you know really do watch all those things. Um, I mean, they're just generally they're more isolated now than they were twenty years ago. And 20 years ago, they were even more isolated they were than, say, when I started covering in the 70s. And it has to do with, uh, as the money gets bigger, and the money's enormous for a lot of these these guys. Secondly, as you mentioned, Twitter, but also the fear of being out and something goes up for you on a cell phone, you know, take your picture or video, and there's kind of no context to it. So they would rather stay, just frankly, away from a lot of people. That's true. That's very sympathetic. Very I hadn't thought about that. Of what could happen. Yeah, that's very true. Baker Mayfield with his shirt off in the Bahamas becomes a meme, yeah. uh, you know, a dad body meme. And uh, then he comes in ripped the next year because he's mad about it. It's kind of interesting. I mean, dynamic. You know, the classic thing is somebody really pops off to an athlete in a restaurant or somewhere and, um, and really says something, and, and, but the tape only catches the athlete's response. And I'm not talking about punching somebody, but just, you know, kind of lighten into them. Because these, you know, let's face it, these guys, you know, if you're an athlete, you're told, you don't take that. You know, you stand up for yourself. I mean, that's part of how they got to where they are. Uh, so they have, that's why they are concerned. Um, I would say this, Miles Garrett is out in the community a lot, doing a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, he was this weekend. I saw him out at the, the mural unveiling. The mural, he's been yeah. at the schools. The Browns have done a great job of, uh, of putting in new fields at the different uh, inner city schools and that, and see, and this is long before Miles had his incident with the with Pittsburgh with the helmet and all that. Miles has been doing that from like day one. He was sort of their go-to guy to go out to the place. I mean, I was at Cleveland State a few years ago, and the athletic director said to me, uh, "You know, Miles Garrett talked to our women's soccer team and basketball teams." I'm like, "What?" 
because he, he had a friend who had a friend. They asked him to come out, and we got him together, and he came out and talked and signed some autographs. And it's like nobody knew about it. Yeah, you know, the, the high-character people that you end up with, I, I know that a lot of NFL front offices talk about high-character guys, and I don't know if they actually care about high-character, but they, they got lucky. trouble. It's what they don't want. The, 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 the care, of course, the care, it's kind of like probably in politics. It's like, okay, we, we want a guy who's really good out in the public, but we're not saying he has to be, you know, the, the greatest guy ever. But we don't, we don't want trouble here. Angels need out of pride. Yeah, just yeah. just just don't do that. Now I want to tell you about sports writing because some people are going to listen to this because of the business. Mm-hmm. It's changing. There is now this thing called Substack, and I've been wondering if that appeals to you at all. In other words, Terry Pluto could go out and start a Substack, and people would subscribe and pay you directly. Do you just love the newsroom, or or yes. is that a way you'll ever go? I guess that's the answer. Yeah, yeah, you love the, answer, the newsroom. Yes. I, I love the newsroom. I love. You know, still seeing my stuff in the Plain Dior. I love the fact the internet reaches people literally all over the world. Uh, I like that I could play in two arenas, but I don't have to sit there and worry about the business end of it, the content, how it comes together, you know, in terms of how it's packaged or anything else. Um, And it's still a fact, Hugh, that when um, I call and he's Terry Pluto from the Plain Dior, you're going to get more of cooperation or more of a response from front office people or, you know, agents or whatever than if you're Terry Pluto from Terry Pluto. But you've uh, also never screwed anyone. As far as yeah. I can tell, you cover hard stories and you'll say, I won't say hard things, you'll say true things about players. Like you are always down on the injury prone. This is like the Terry Pluto meme. Yeah, I don't like is. this guy. He's a wonderful guy, but he gets injured too much. You, you cover the injury reports more than anybody I know. So you say, you know, you're going to run into – uh, a clowny at some point, and he's going to say, you're the guy who didn't want me to come to town, and you're going to say, no, I just covered how many games you didn't play, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I just want you to stay healthy, and <laughs> and that that's what it is. The fact is, if you, like in Odell Beckham, the last four years, he's missed 42% of the games. That's what he's missed. And if you go on, and he has an ACL knee injury, so you go into this year and say, oh, he's going to play well for 16 games. Why would you say that? Yeah. That's not that, that's way beyond being analytics. It's just common sense. So, yes, that's what it is. Um, in fact, that's one of the things when my faith became, uh, I would say over 20-some years ago, I, I got more serious about my faith. That was back when my dad was dying of a stroke, and that did drive me to my knees, and it did make me face God. It did make me look at a lot of things. Uh, talking to a couple of my friends who are pastors, uh, all right, how do I do my job? Because I was a columnist, you know, and it got away because part of a columnist's job, just like yours, is to criticize. But it's criticize the action, not the person. You know, unless the stuff is just so egregious on a personal level. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, for the most part, um, a bad trade is a bad trade. I mean, it isn't like the, the guys who got up and run in the Browns and, and made terrible deals just said, boy, I'm going to wake up today and see I can mess up the franchise because I have absolutely no character and I want everything to fail. Yeah, but it, the, the way some of the people were covered, you would think that that's – yeah. What, yeah. Is that true thought? about Frank Lane and Phil Segui? Because I've always had my doubts, Terry, about those well, two Frank guys. Frank Lane, I'm not sure. He, seriously, <laughs> I'm not sure he was mentally stable. I'm really not. <laughs> okay, there you go. So that's one thing. Uh, Phil was a guy driven by. I knew Phil. Driven by. How about this? Phil Segui's son, Mike Segui, has been the Indians traveling secretary, I believe, since 1973. Wow. 
And so I talk about a guy who's seen all the GMs and owners come and go. They talk Phil about a guy who can go, who can roll. Emotional. Phil, was, yeah. Phil was emotional. Phil was sitting in the back of the press box. That was back when they didn't have all their private booths to go to and everything, the smaller press box. And the Indians were, would suck. And once in a while, I looked down at a couple of those writers, and he'd go, go who put this team together? Like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Actually, it was good for a laugh. It really was. <laughs> well, now, if you had a room and you put the Haslam's, the Dolan's, and Dan Gilbert in there, and you put in Antonetti and Barry and Kobe Altman, and you put in Terry Francona, Tito, Kevin, uh, and J.B. Bickerstaff. Wouldn't that be an interesting dozen people? I mean, those are smart people, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. I mean, of, of the group that's been the most successful, the Indians group has. They've done more with less than they've done it for longer. That's the the Dolan ownership with Chris Antonetti and his top assistant, Mike Chernoff, who you can tell Chris, he turned down the Mets GM job. Um, he did. And, wow. And uh, Chernoff did, and then Terry Francona. Um, that group you know, has had – uh, eight consecutive winning seasons, five playoffs, one World Series. So that that's really solid. And they have the hardest job because there's no salary cap. Um, we're you know we're very hopeful about Barry Stefanski, De Podesta, with Jimmy Haslam. You know Haslam's have, is he's going to have to be patient because at some point there's going to be a problem. And then what you do is you ride it out. That's been the Indian success with the Dolans is when they've had problems they've ridden it out with their group because uh, they've decided their group is good. You know Dan Gilbert. It's fascinating because, you know, he's always looks at things just slightly different. Um, and I remember one time, I think this was the first time they hired Mike Brown, which just tells you a little bit about Dan Bielber. It's the first time they hired Mike Brown, then he hired him later on. Um, I said, yep. well, well, Mike Brown doesn't have any head coaching experience. And he, Gilbert looked at me. It's a, it's a legit question. He goes, we ask this in business all the time. Yeah, he, uh, say a guy with experience. He goes, experience doing what? being mediocre yeah settling he said a lot of times you hire that guy it seems safe he was mediocre before and then you get him and you wonder why he's mediocre i'm not going to mention the name but i was told about an nfl coach who has had a number of different gigs you could count on him to go 500 like a rock Mm -hmm. and that's why some franchises wanted to go 500 because he could organize the team and he could get the team on the on the and and he could produce a product that wasn't going to shame you but you're not going to get great a, with this guy. They have a name guy. for those guys, by the way. Which 401k is? coaches. Okay, 401k. <laughs> they, they do just enough, okay, to do what you said, which is pad your 401k. Yeah. Now, let me talk to you about broadcasting because you, you made note that you lost Joe Tate, a good yeah. friend. Now, I, did, I never met Joe. I just listened to him That's endlessly. Too bad. Oh. Yeah. He sounds like a wonderful guy. And the last column you wrote when you went and saw him, it touched me. But I've had Vin Scully on this show. I never got to talk to Herb Score. I did talk to Tom Hamilton once at spring training. Great mm-hmm. voice. I haven't talked to Austin Carr yet. But what makes a great sports announcer for a city, Terry Pluto? Well, if you look at the two best in my, you know, whatever this is, 100 years, it feels like sometimes, well, at least 40-some years, it is Tom Hamilton and Joe Tate. They have a lot in common. Both are from the Midwest. They're not from Cleveland, interestingly. Tate is from rural Illinois, and Hamilton's from rural Wisconsin. When they, they both did a lot of small market radio, Hamilton a bunch up in uh, Wisconsin, and then he got a job in Columbus, and then he came to Cleveland. Tate a bunch in, uh, as he used to say, I was the morning mayor, and he would tick off all these little towns like Frankfurt, Illinois, and you know, all these other places. 
Um, and then he got a chance to do the Cavaliers. And then when they came here, um, they, 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 they basically were able to uh, adapt to uh, the market, and they stayed. And both of them told me the exact same thing, and they looked at other people who had left uh, what you would call smaller markets to go do uh, games somewhere else, and suddenly they weren't beloved anymore. I think they were, the fact that they were from Midwest, the Midwest, they felt comfortable here. Secondly, they're kind of old-time radio guys. People here still want the score. They still want the basics. But they, with their voice, they could paint that picture, and they could just bring the excitement in when it comes. It's not phony excitement. It's real. Uh, you felt that they liked your team, but they also would get mad at your team periodically. But again, attack the action, not the person. And so they then became the voice of the team, and they stayed. You know, Tony Kozar is forever revered here because he finagled in the supplemental draft of 85 to come to Cleveland, and he's from Youngstown. He's from Boardman. And I, I got to tell you, the, the only other sports person I've talked to on this podcast series is Vin Scully. I, I took oh, out my. an old interview. And Vin Scully had perfect uh, – he taught me a lot about the three-minute egg timer. Say the name of your guest, Terry Pluto, every three yes. minutes. Uh, hit the break. Nobody uh, does that. It drives me nuts on the radio, by the way. Oh, it's That's terrible. Like the score. It's like, well, hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Who's Chris? Who Who's Chris? He? Yeah, uh, who's Chris? And and just tell people what you don't know when you don't know. And he could mm-hmm. fill hours. He was just perfect. But it's an art. Now, I got to finish by asking you about I'm going to tell you a story and then ask for your similar story. I'm at the White House Correspondents Association. It's the D.C. prom a couple of years ago. I've only gone once. This is the only time I went. And it was Hall of Fame year. They decided they would sprinkle among all the journalists and all the news people in D.C. a bunch of Hall of Famers. So I'm walking to my table and I'm with NBC at the time, and I'm, I'm getting a good table, so I'm moving towards the front. And a guy pops up in front of me and says, Hugh Hewitt, I love your work. And I look up, and it's Dennis Eckersley with the Fu Manchu. And really? Terry, I go, I go, you know, I didn't know what to say because it's Dennis Eckersley. I see you know, I grew up watching Dennis mm-hmm. Eckersley. What am I going to say to Dennis Eckersley? Totally lost it. Can't talk to sports people. My, my produ- production team knows this. I become a kid again. I can't talk to them or comedians. Have you ever had that problem, being able to talk to people who are larger than life when you're a kid, but then are they're just adults playing a game? I think the first time I talked to Rocky Calavito, and I was like 19, and I <laughs> talked to this Cleveland Plain Dealer Sunday Magazine into letting me go down to write a story on him. Exactly why they allowed me to do it to this day is sort of strange, but they did. And I went down, and it's like, and the thing about Rocky is he he always is abrupt with people he didn't know. And it's like, oh, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to mess this up. My childhood thing, my father loved him. And I started to say that, and I could tell that was going nowhere. And so I, I he was a coach at the time. And suddenly I, and I thought, you better ask a question. I said, well, Rocky, tell me how it is for a former player to become a coach, and do you miss playing? I said, just tell me that. And I'll tell you, that was the Holy – I look back now see, that was the Holy Spirit guiding me because that was what he was interested in. Oh, interesting. I can't sit down, sit down. So I remember there, and he was like sorting baseballs or something during the whole time. He had, the eye contact wasn't great. But he talked to me, and then he talked about how he would he – this was like a second or third duty, tour of duty doing the Indians, and he would quit and go home, and then he would come back. And, you know, it, it's a strange relationship with the game that, that he described. It ended up being a pretty good piece. 
But I was like one question away from being kicked out of the door and totally nervous. And that's something that sometimes I had to remember. Now, he, he, you know, he is he's still a guy and he's got a job. And yeah, that, well, I have a help me. I had a high school buddy, Greg. I won't tell you his last name. He always wanted to be a sports writer. He got his first gig. I won't tell you the club. He did not like anybody in the locker room. They were not mm-hmm. nice to him. I don't get that vibe around Cleveland so much. He went to a, a big, big, uh, big city, and I don't get that vibe around, at least from the people that I follow on your site and others. I do not think that the Cleveland players are standoffish. And if there was one of them I could interview, I want to ask you open-endedly who's the best interview, but I want to talk to Jarvis Landry because I think that guy oh. is on fire all the time. Oh, Jarvis is wonderful. Jarvis is really, really good. Um, unfortunately, because the Indians have had such turnover with with all their younger guys, um, it's it's there. But I'll tell you, a guy that's interesting on the Indians is Roberto Perez from from uh, Puerto Rico, who signed for five hundred dollars and was the one thousand and eleventh draft pick. And I forgot wow. what year it is, and how he had to learn to speak English and that stuff. He's a really good guy to talk to. Uh, the Cavaliers are so young right now that I have to admit I don't know them very well except for one person, and he's a prince, and that's Larry Nance Jr. His father, Larry Nance Sr., played here, and, and he's the only player probably in NBA history thrilled to be traded from the Lakers to the Cavs. Yeah, so um, let me wrap up by asking but you I'll about... tell you this, too, Hugh. Covering these teams, one, their access is a lot less. Secondly, the players are trained a lot more on how to deal with the media than when I first started. Um, it, it, it is a different ball game on two. You had a lot more access back then, but it could be wilder too. Because uh, also a lot of the junk that went on between the players and media when they yelled at you through through paper wads or French fries, yeah. which I had and everybody else had, uh, it would just kind of go unreported. It was sort of like a day at the office. Not you know, anymore. Not, Not anymore. If it actually did happen. Now you would think that the empire fell. Um, <laughs> so, so they just don't do it and they have all these big rooms where they don't they kind of come out at one time they do a group thing and then leave um and have so you it, watched ted lasso yet no i have not oh terry do me a favor get apple tv and watch ted lasso because the sports writers in england are different from the sports writers in america and it's a it's really one of the most charming wonderful shows i've ever seen uh, well, it's like watching the english uh, the parliament when they have their things on there and they all just start yelling and Oh, it's just, it's just, you'll, you'll thank me for that. I wanted to close by referencing the fact in one of recent column, you referenced talking to your wife because you asked her, when did the Cavs laugh win that LeBron wasn't on the team? And she got it right. Now the fetching was the 90s. I'm like, yeah, good, good for her because the fetching Mrs. Hewitt wouldn't know which sport the Cavaliers Mm -hmm. played. She just puts up with it. So my question is athletes, spouses. Do you ever talk to them, or is that the no-go zone of the world? Do you just you not sure talk? You make sure you get that cleared uh, if you do it. But usually when you do, it's a good story because they tend to be much better talkers than their husbands. Uh, I think Emily Mayfield is a uh, is a find. Uh, when yeah. she took care of that, that fan who was going to die and died, I just mm-hmm. thought, okay, there is a wonderful woman. And a lot and, of other things I think that uh, Baker's doing community-wise, PR-wise, she's the one that has the touch for that. So, uh, And that helps. I mean, Corey Kluber's wife, Kluber's like almost a reclusive. Uh, she got him all involved in children's hospitals and things like that. So they can really help you. I mean, my wife, Roberta, when she met me, she knew nothing about sports. Um We've been married 43 years and known each other, I'll uh, be 47 years coming up. And 
but she's edited all my books. She's the first read just about on all my stories when they go in. Uh, so she's, you know, she's learned that um, to go along. Like right now, like all these, when I'm interviewing these different former Browns players for the series and what was your draft day like, um, she's transcribing most of the tapes. Uh, we are like a small business on the side. See, that's when you talked about self-stack and all that. I've been doing that in a different way as an author with her. Yep, you're right for you're right for our audience. You're right for the Cleveland audience, and yeah, you do, do very, very well. Yeah, because yeah. that's who's gonna. I mean, that's who's gonna read me. Um, and I think writers that are just writing to amuse themselves should just have their own blog somewhere, and they can do it with five friends, and that's fine. But don't subject the general audience to that. No, they want it, to know about the Browns or the Indians or a human human story, um, and they want to be able to read it without having to look up fifteen words. And they and they want to be able to read about their home region. I won't say town because oh, yeah. I'm not from Cleveland. Yeah, they right. Want... Northeast Ohio, you know, Cleveland, Akron, Lorain County, all the way to Youngstown. You know, it, it's become a, a mini monolith right now, and and I'm thrilled for that. And that's one thing when I realized I was able to do this in my hometown. I mean, over the years, I had a call. I had a chance to go to the Chicago Sometimes. I didn't go. Chance to interview for a job at Newsday. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Long Island Newsday, which I had a shot to get because my uh, former boss was at the time going to be the was a sports editor there. But it's like I hung up and I, I talked to my wife and we're looking. She said, "What do you want to go to New York for? We're not going to New York." Yeah. So I called yeah. back at the time. <laughs> it's kind of like the Joe Tate, Tom Hamilton thing, too. You yeah. figure out where you are, you're comfortable there, and they like you there. So other than to be able to say, boy, I did it in Chicago, I did it in New York, um, really, what what are you chasing? No, that that's such good words to young people. Last last real topic is for young people who are thinking about your career. Everybody thinks they want to do it. Oh, they boy. don't know how long it is away from home, I think. I don't think they quite get what the travel is. Everybody wants to be a radio talk show host. Let them let them live in airports for 20 years and then I'll talk to them about it. What do you think your advice to young people who want to be sports writers? The problem is the job where you're a full-time sports writer there's not going to be that many of them. You better be multimedia, and you better know all about video and, as you mentioned before, podcast and, and whatever else is coming next. And the odds are, get ready to have two or three jobs because the quote-unquote mainstream media that a lot of people like to ridicule and whatever, the one thing it did is it created a lot of, a lot of full-time jobs for people. As it, you know, whether you talk about shrinking or, or reconfiguring, that means fewer full-time jobs. And so, you, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, a number of people you hear on the radio here in Cleveland or whatever, they're part-time. A number of the bylines you see on Cleveland.com, they're part-time. So, Tough business. Yep. Yes. So you better be able to sell cars, insurance, uh, do something else because um, you're going to uh, you're going to be feeling it. A friend of mine who had been sports editor in Jacksonville, Florida, and had worked for ESPN for eight years, very good. He got hit on one of those ESPN layoffs about a year ago, and he, I mean, this is good. This is a sharp guy, Hugh. He applied everywhere. It was so bad, he had just got his, uh, his uh, real estate license, and then we hired him. His name is Scott Kendrick to come to work for us on our inside operation, one of the few full-time jobs out there. In the old days, this guy wouldn't have been out of work for 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's my here are my two unsolicited suggestions for Cleveland.com. They got to get a Terry Pluto on Faith podcast going because I'd listen to it every time it came out. You're just talking to people of faith. And then, uh, look, I love your whole team. 
but Doug has a radio voice. He mm -hmm. really does. You, you two do a podcast together just an hour a week. I'll listen. I think everybody in the region, in the land will listen. And he's got a radio voice pacing and energy that's just second to none. And I listen to these guys. They're all good. They're all terrific. Mm -hmm. You two would be terrific. Terry, uh, we are at the official 45-minute mark, which no one should go longer on a podcast. I appreciate your time. I'll be listening to you via remote. Where are you going to be on draft night? Who are you talking to? Uh, probably it'll be just right now. Unless they change the thing, I can be just sitting at home, and they'll be doing stuff on Zoom because it's a different world. I will be watching you, Terry Porto, <laughs> over at Cleveland.com. Like everybody else. <laughs> you, I, I don't know how it's been in Europe, but this has been just totally weird times on how things are covered. Best of times, worst of times. I've gotten to be in my studio uninterrupted for 15 months, but I'm going back on the road soon, and, and then that means visiting affiliates, Terry. It's like you going on the road with yeah. the Cavaliers, you know. And There's also, a, just, I mean, I used to do a lot of library talks and things where I connect with readers, and, you know, I'm hoping one day to get all that back because I certainly miss that. It's coming. I people have you been vaccinated yet? Oh yeah. Yeah, good for you. I, I keep telling. Wait. Yeah, you and me both. I have too many friends ended up on Venom. I'm the, and again, I know everybody gets it. My and and my wife had it. Fortunately, we did. We were briefly in the hospital, and she just majorly had the fatigue. We were just trying to figure out what the heck was wrong with her. But I don't really want that for three weeks like she had it, much less some of the friends I know that went to the hospital and one didn't get out. I mean, close friends. So ditto. You know, yeah. one, one person, and that's the parabola or the, the bell curve of that illness is you don't want to be on the one end of it. Yeah, and, or just the guys that, and some other people. I mean, heck, Miles Garrett suffered with it for months. Is he over it yet, do you think? Yes, I was told he is. That's good, because it, you could tell. I mean, he just, you know, he was out three weeks, and, and you could see he would be good in the first quarter. And, I mean, this is the finest conditioned athlete, I think, in Cleveland. He was like LeBron in terms of how he handled his body, the whole thing, you know, where genetics and desire come together to create this and discipline to create this this, this athletic uh, marvel. And it just showed you. I mean, this guy could not do it. I mean, he have played, you, but he was half himself. Have you seen the video of OBJ rehabbing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if I, if I taking into uh, my account the Terry Pluto emphasis on injury, I think if I were the Browns, I wouldn't let him play the first half of the season because the best thing that was written about him is you don't maybe need OBJ on the field during the season, but you need him in the playoffs. And boy, yeah. could they have used him against the Chiefs. Yeah, they could have uh, in, in the right way. Like I said, it, 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 we'll just have to see, and it depends on, on all kinds of things there. The problem when a guy has a history of, of a variety of injuries is that you may fix the one injury, but another one comes. Another in. one, yeah. Just like, remember, he had, uh, he had torn quads. He had a broken ankle. He had a bunch of stuff. It, it's really, you know, this is a football game where they try to hurt you. You know, a last question. You know, I, I was watching um, uh Trevor Bauer's 45-minute breakdown of Shane Bieber's yeah. delivery. And it was fascinating. He could be in broadcast. But he was talking about motions, et cetera. And then I read something on Malik Jackson's lift sick. What's it called? A lift sick injury? And I began to think sports writers nowadays have to be kind of clinicians. Oh, you do. And you have, again, you have, and you have to learn all the new jargon for the other things. You know, Bauer is, is remarkable on, on how he's – a lot of the things that he uh, – had these weird theories and iron balls and all the stuff he did, the throwing. Uh, the Indians incorporated into their program many years ago. Corey Kluber adapted to some of this stuff from Bauer, 
And I think it put them at the vanguard of developing pitchers. Now, I agree. some of his, his other stuff was too weird to, to be used, but a good half of it really was game-changing. I would love to see that guy's IQ. I have never seen anyone break down a pitcher like that, and he showed the balls, overlaid over all the balls. And I don't know the difference between a slider and a changeup and a curve. I know a curveball from a yeah. fastball, but but the way he broke it down, he was very good at that, Terry. Uh, what an interesting guy, but I'm glad he's in the National League, not ours. Yes, yeah, I am too. And and um, and they came out of that trade. I think they're going to be all right. I got Fran Mil Reyes and that because he went to the Roy- to the Reds. They got nothing. Franimal. We all knew he was going to the Dodgers or Mets or somewhere like that. Oh, my Padres buddies are still sorrowing the loss of Franimal, so I think we yeah, did well on I'll that. I'll tell you, anybody that, other than um, when Bauer, but if you take a picture from the Indians, look out. Their arms are usually ready to fall off by the time this team <laughs> On that note, don't warn anyone, Terry. I can Terry. make a whole list of Mike Clevenger, Corey Kluber, Andrew Miller, um, Cody Allen, and I'm not sure I'm forgetting a few. Bowers, like always, Bowers the exception. Yeah, um, do not tell, don't let, you know, Aunt Nettie is going to ask me to edit that out, and yeah. uh, maybe I will. Well, <laughs> Plano, that, not quite in that harsh a terms, but it's like there should be a warning sign. <laughs> you get a call from the Indians and they start bringing up a starting pitcher. You better, unless, you better be careful. On that good note, Terry Plato, good to talk to you. Thank you, friend. Take care, Hugh. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.